both born to the same parents, both born in the 1940s, both born in a small town in Nebraska, were born two brothers, Chuck and Tom Hagel. And that is pretty much where the likeness ends. For these two boys grew up as total opposites. Older brother Chuck, at a Catholic school, was the teacher's pet. Younger brother Tom was the class clown who imitated all the nuns. Chuck was the homecoming king. Tom soon came home after being kicked out of school. Chuck ran for student council, making the prediction that, that someday he'd be a US senator, and he was right. Tom's only interest was running from his father's furious anger. Accordingly, when it came to the war in Vietnam, that the two brothers obviously took totally different sides. Chuck supported the government and the war. Tom hated everyone in politics and every war effort. Chuck volunteered for Vietnam. Tom only volunteered to avoid orders for Germany. But in 1968, something bizarre happened. Indeed, so bizarre, it never happened again. For in spite of a, of a military regulation which forbid brothers to serve side by side, brothers T Chuck and Tom Hagel were placed together, and not just in the same division or regiment or even company, but amazingly in the very same rifle platoon of around 30 other men. And there those two boys not only became men, but marching through the, the sweltering Vietnamese jungle, those two boys saved each other time and time again. For a few weeks in, when a landmine exploded, the younger Tom was hit with heavy shrapnel, which went right through his arm. But when Tom saw that his brother Chuck had been hit worse, he ignored all those excruciating wounds and he bandaged the chest of his older brother, thus saving his life. And just one month later, the roles were reversed. For during fierce combat, Chuck was surrounded and, and knew he had to flee enemy soldiers, but seeing that Tom was trapped inside a truck which was about to explode, Chuck ran towards the vehicle and pulled Tom out. Tom's life was saved. But in the process, Chuck's own face was turned into a mass of blisters. Both brothers incredibly survived Vietnam. Both were given purple hearts for saving one another. But why? Why did these two total opposites continue to, to save and to serve one another until they safely returned home? Well, it's certainly because both were Americans. And it was certainly because both served in the same platoon. But as they admitted to journalists later, there was a bond that went beyond nationality and platoon number, which made them especially watchful over one another. For Chuck and Tom understood that though they were very different, they carried the same family name, such that their love amid war was a brotherly one. Well, whether we like uh, heroic old war stories or whether we cannot even stand thinking about war, the, the Christian life is such. 
The Christian life is often in the Bible uh, painted as a war. The Christian life is not a war on earthly governments. The Christian life obviously does not involve guns. The Christian life does not require elite fitness or, or even for us to go overseas and be hurt necessarily. But you know, the Christian's fight is often harder and the stakes of leaving Jesus' army mid-battle are often far higher. They are far higher than any human war. For in case you didn't know, it is a battle. It is a battle to keep believing in Jesus. It is a battle to strongly counter the devil's lies, to to be watchful in this jungle-like world which often pierces us with shrapnel-like sin, like Chuck, or seeks to trap us in places which will shatter soon, like Tom. And as a result, we must humbly admit that we need brothers in arms. We need brothers and sisters in arms. If you're a Christian here this morning, I wonder if you see that the Christian life like that, or whether all that, that warlike imagery just sounds a little bit over the top. I wonder if you see your need for comrades, or whether that just sounds a bit needy, or maybe even a bit cheesy. I wonder what might fittingly motivate you to see the need to love others in this battle. For the last seven months, uh, we've walked through the, the first letter of the Apostle Paul written to the first century church in the city of Corinth. And here our journey ends. Chapter 16 is obviously the last chapter. And here, as Paul puts down his pen, we note that his final command is very military-like. For his preeminent command is found in verse 13, and it has all the hallmarks of a battle cry. Be watchful, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Now, now the act like men phrase does not mean women are not brave, nor does the act like men phrase mean uh, be a person who's okay with one word text messaging. No, the act like men phrase in the first century context where, where only men would go to war means act like a soldier. Act like a soldier. Basically, Paul says, Corinthian Church members, men and women, be watchful, look out that the world seeks to ensnare you. Stand firm in the faith, trust in the resurrection as we've thought about in the last few weeks. Be strong, don't bend with an unbelieving culture. And you know what? Many of those Corinthians would not have minded that call to be strong because the city was for the strong and the successful. Corinth was a city full of of beauty queens with PhDs and quarterbacks with, with thriving businesses. It was a city for the strong, the strong intellectually and the strong physically and the strong financially. Indeed, Paul sarcastically applauds the, the, the Corinthians for their strength in, in chapter four. He says, we are fools for Christ, but you're so wise. We are weak sinners, but you're so strong. The church was proud proud of their minds and their muscles. They thought that they were the marines of the Christian world. 
But as we look at the second major imperative in this section, and as we look throughout this, this last chapter, can you see how they were to be strong? How they were to stand? How they were to be good soldiers? To these proud Christians who often did the Christian life without reference to one another, who thought that they could easily win the battle themselves and yet were in more danger of going AWOL than most. To these proud Christians, Paul grounds the command to stand strong of verse 13 in the final command of verse 14. Verse 14, all you do, be done in love. All this watching, all this standing firm, being strong, it is not an independent macho pursuit. It's not a call to be a solid, solitary sniper, to hide off all by yourself because you love yourself. No, let all you do be done in love. Let all of these things lovingly be done together because in this war, you need other Christians and other Christians, they need you. And so what Paul does masterfully here as he closes is to highlight to these strong, independent Christians that they will need each other to do all this. That this is a collective war effort. That they need to be in the fight together. That all must be done together in love. And that therefore, therefore, they must remember that they are brothers They're not just placed in the same platoon, that they bear the same family name, the name of Christ. For seven times, then if you noticed it, seven times in just 24 verses, using the phrase brother or some derivation of household of God, Paul stresses that the church in Corinth is all part of the same worldwide family in Christ. And so as the spiritual battle raged, as it raged throughout the the, the first century Mediterranean world, as many came to faith in Jesus, as many fought to to, to remain in Jesus, specifically how was the church that, that, that met in Corinth to love brothers and sisters in arms? And likewise, how are we, church? The church that, that meets at 7th and Russell. How are we to love our brothers and sisters in arms. Well, in this final chapter, Paul highlights four things which we're to do in love. And the first of these is to give to all your brothers and sisters. Uh, finally, we've gotten to point one this morning. Point one in full. You can see it on your service sheets there. In love, give to all your brothers and sisters proportionally. Uh, throughout Paul's letters, uh, we've met the phrase, now concerning... And in verse 1, we get the final one of those phrases, now concerning the, the, the collection for the saints. Now, what was this all about? Well, if you look down to verse 3, we see that there was a collection uh, for the church in Jerusalem. Now, now we're not told why that the church in Jerusalem needed money. Perhaps uh, the widespread persecution of Acts chapter 8 had brought about the need for clothes, or, or perhaps the famine of, of Acts chapter 11 had brought about the need for food. But either way, Paul assumes that the Corinthians will give supplies to the church in Jerusalem to keep them going because it is war and they are family. Verse 1, they are saints in the household of God. 
And so verse two, every week each church member is to save up. Verse three, when Paul comes, trusted Corinthian church members can go with Paul and they can deposit their financial gift. I know that may have been very new to these predominantly Gentile Christians. For God's family, that was normal. But for God's people had always seen the responsibility to provide for God's people. And did we see that throughout the Old Testament? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15. If you, if you Israelites, have one of your brothers who should become poor in any of your towns, in your land, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand to your poor brother. You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Accordingly, we see exactly the same thing throughout the New Testament. As soon as the church, God's new covenant family, new covenant people is born by the Holy Spirit in the, in the first few pages of Acts, that the church in Jerusalem takes note of those who are baptized, who gather with the church, who are added to the number, so that they can share their possessions with them. And the believers sell and they share with, with other believers as needs arise. And the focus clearly is on providing for the family of God. Indeed, deacons are raised up in Acts chapter 6. For it's critical that all church members are given to. Uh, Greek widows who belong to the church mustn't be overlooked. In favor of Jewish widows who also belong to the church. The same thing happens in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Widows in God's family must be provided for first. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, Paul says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially, literally that is, those who are on the household of faith. Paul wants to see the Corinthians seeing that Christians have a particular responsibility to give to their brothers and sisters. And not only their brothers and sisters, did you note, within the own local church, but as we see here, far beyond that. So, were there poor people in Corinth? Were there poor people in Corinth? Absolutely there were. And were the Corinthians to ignore the poor people in their city? No. Paul is not saying who not to give to, but quite clearly, there was not quite the same level of responsibility to care for them because their true family ties were in Christ and they were to be stronger ties than those to their city because of Christ. Their, their brothers and sisters were in Jerusalem. They may not have been anything like them. They may not have had anything in common with them, just like Chuck and Tom Hagel, but they were to give to those in their family, even family that they'd never seen before. In fact, more than that, they were to give to people who were, who were naturally, in the world's eyes, their enemies. For who was the church of Jerusalem primarily made up of? Well, obviously, it was made up of Jews. And who were they? Well, obviously, primarily, they, they were Greeks. And yet, can you see what's happening here? Look again at verse 1. Paul's going to take a collection from the Corinthians. He's going to take Greek money. And who else is he going to take a collection from? Verse 1, from the churches of Galatia. He's also going to take some Turkish money. And these two churches from two Western regions, from two Western regions that, that kind of hated each other, they would combine their resources together to give to a church in an Eastern region that they both hated. This is like LA Dodgers fans 
and San Francisco Giants fans coming together, pooling their incomes so that they could give generously to New York Yankees fans. This was like Michigan and Ohio State fans saving up all they have so that Alabama fans can keep watching the football. <laughs> or so I'm told. That their, their giving went beyond local affinity. Their giving went to poor Christians globally. What a testimony. What, what a testimony to the transforming nature of the gospel. What, what a statement about where their, their ultimate allegiance was. When our money goes to sisters that we've not met before, and brothers really unlike us, when our money reaches beyond nationality and to those who are standing firm in the faith all around the world, just like these Corinthian Christians did for the church in Jerusalem. In love, we give to all our brothers and sisters. And yet quickly, just notice how we to do this. Christians are to do this regularly. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, perhaps it was a weekly collection of the church. It doesn't say specifically but as well as weekly, notice that they're to do it proportionally. Verse 3, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So every Christian is to give something. All are to be generous as the Lord Jesus taught. But some people may have prospered more than other people. Some people may be on salaries of $40,000. Some may be on salaries of $400,000. Hopefully all will give a portion but some will be able to give proportionally more to the Lord's family because the Lord has blessed their labors particularly. Now, if you're visiting here, uh, you should know that, that very rarely will we ever talk about money uh, here at Edgefield Church. And, and if you're visiting here, we're certainly not looking for your money. But when it comes up in the Bible, as we walk through God's word book by book, we think that Christians shouldn't be afraid to talk about money because our money is not even our money, it's God's. And so we have no qualms about discussing how, how we can use our money together to bless God's family, battle-weary brothers and sisters all around the world who we will get the joy of meeting in heaven when the war's over. And so for many of us here, maybe this is a moment when we get to review our, our, our regular giving and consider whether we can give a greater proportion to brothers and sisters need. But friends, let me say, let me say that already you are so good at that. You're so good at that. Indeed, that is one of the things that I hope and pray might be exported from America to other believers all around the world. American Christians, they are so generous of their money. American Christians are a real model of open-handedness, and I know that many of you are too. Now, I've got no clue how much any of you give to our church, but I'm so encouraged about how much we give together. Friends, may the Lord bless, really bless your generosity with heavenly blessings, and in particular, the fruits of discovering in heaven of how your money allowed other brothers and sisters to keep going because of your faithful giving. Point one, first four verses, in love, give to all your brothers and sisters proportionally, Point two, verses five to nine, in love, help all of your brothers and sisters sacrificially. Well, whatever happened uh, growing up uh, in the 40s, 
Uh, by the 1960s, in, in the middle of the Vietnam War, Chuck and Tom Hagel were doing everything to help one another. As Tom stemmed the, the flow of blood coming from the chest of his older brother Chuck, Tom thought nothing of his own deep wounds. Tom thought nothing of his own inferior rank or his second-rate schooling. And Chuck, as he lay there in the jungle, bleeding out, he did not in pride say that he did not need any help from his younger brother. He cried out for his little brother to come. And likewise, one month later, as I explained, when the older brother Chuck saw the younger Tom in that vehicle, Chuck thought nothing of the danger. Chuck thought nothing of his superior rank or the fact that maybe he could do much more when he became a U.S. senator, and so he should just save himself. No, he ran. He ran to get Tom out, even if it meant being scarred for life. And that is how Christian brothers and sisters live. We help one another, and we do it sacrificially. In verse 6, strikingly, uh, despite all their idiotic brother tendencies, Paul, Paul's not too proud, is he? to ask the Corinthians for their help. He hopes to stay with them, so verse 6, they can help him. But right now, verse 8, Paul is busy helping the Ephesian church. And on the surface, that the help that, that Paul uh, gives now and the help that Paul will receive, it doesn't maybe sound like much, but if we look carefully, we start to see something of the sacrifice involved. For when will, will Paul need the Corinthians to help him? Verse 6, you'll need somewhere to stay in winter. Paul's going to barge in during Thanksgiving and Christmas. More seriously, he's, he's coming when the supplies are low, when more time was spent indoors, when more fires needed to be lit. But because he's a brother in Christ, he just assumes that that's normal. He doesn't ask if anyone will host him. He just tells them to be ready to host him. Just like Isaac and Elizabeth Biggs opening up their home at the, at the drop of a hat to our missionaries, Drew and Caroline Avery, so often. Just like Victoria Hardaway posting on, on Edgefield Connect this week about hosting a, a, a missionary. So the Corinthians are to help Paul by hosting him. It's a sacrifice, but brothers and sisters will help because the sacrificial hosting of other Christians is something that actually authenticates the gospel. As Rosaria Butterfield says in her excellent book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, radical, ordinary hospitality shows the skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity really looks like. Such helping is key, even though it's sometimes hard. And speaking of the sacrifice involved in helping, why is it that, that, that Paul is not coming to Corinth just yet? Well, look at the end of verse 9. Because there's a chance to help the Ephesians, because there are gospel opportunities there, but also because there are many adversaries. Paul can't come in time for the summer cookout. Paul can't come in time for the, for the full retreat. Because the Ephesians are metaphorically surrounded. The Ephesian church is under heavy fire. They're, they're trapped in the vehicle. They're bleeding out. It's the perfect time for Paul to say, well, I guess with all these adversaries around, that's God's way of just closing the door on all this. I'll see you next spring, Ephesians, when it's all quietened down. No. 
adversaries are the very incentive for Paul to help, to help his brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, do you have brothers and sisters like that in your life? Or do you not have many siblings like that because you're too proud to ask for help from one that you consider a silly younger brother or sister? Friends, when was the last time you were asking someone to be hosted? When was the last time you asked for help? And friends, to which Christians do you show such sibling-like help in the midst of their trial? Are you on the lookout to host brothers and sisters in need? Are you on the lookout to help brothers and sisters in great danger? Or do you figure that, well, someone else will help them? I think their small group leader, they've probably got this. I think the elders are probably on it. Friends, I don't mean to alarm you, but sometimes the elders are not on it. For sometimes we, we don't know. We don't know until it's too late. We will always do the very best we can to help if we know that someone is in trouble. For we see that God has given us that particular role in our particular family here at Edgefield Church. We understand that as, as under shepherds, under Christ, we have a particular responsibility to run after the lost. And we really want to be those first responders who get to the wounded, those wounded by other people's sins or trapped in their own sin. But, but often, often many of you, brothers and sisters, you are actually right there when the life landmine explodes. You are the ones who are the first to notice that your sibling might be trapped in that vehicle and that you can help them. And so, friends, doing all things in love, help them. Help them sacrificially. It might be costly. It might potentially jeopardize your friendship, but they're your brothers and sisters. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. And could there be anything more Christ-like than sacrificially going to help them? Anything more that would show a belonging to Christ's loving family than laying down your life for them? If we're Christians, we should grasp that most of all because wonderfully, amazingly, superbly in love, Christ gave all that he had for his brothers and sisters. In death, he gave not a portion, but all his righteousness. And he poured out his holiness on spiritually bankrupt people like us, those who are often bent on selfishness and only looking after ourselves. And in love, Christ sacrificially helped his brothers and sisters, for we were not dying in battle. We were dead in our disgrace and our sin and all our shame. And yet he helped us. He helped us and he, and he, and he lent, gently uh, laid us on his shoulder and he took the bullets to help us out of the perilous place that we had put ourselves in. He carried us home to the Father who bound us with his grace. And so if we are brothers and sisters with him, we should not find it hard to give to brothers and sisters in him or to help other brothers and sisters in him. 
Or third point this morning, to respect brothers and sisters in him. Point three, in love, respect all your brothers and sisters impartially. How else were these Christians set to love one another as they help one another stand firm in, in the fight? Well, look at verse 10 and following with me. When Timothy comes, see to it that you put him at ease amongst you. For he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace. That he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning the brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. In the summer months, as they applied for very important jobs at prestigious Chicago law firms, the best and the brightest of Pritzker's class of 08 waited. Bar exams were all completed now, and these future lawyers looked forward to their graduation. But who would come? Who, who would come and give helpful advice to this crowd of young elites at this top 10 law school? Who would inspire these, these great minds as they went out into the world? Maybe Stephen Hawking, of Cambridge University, or the billionaire businessman Bill Gates, or, or maybe a Supreme Court judge given their degree. No. The Pritzker's class of 08's graduation speaker would be none other than the godfather of trashy TV talk shows himself, Jerry Springer. And as the newspapers reported, Jerry Springer those beautiful and bright, young, success-fueled future lawyers were not happy at all. There was no Go Jerry, Go Jerry shouted in the esteemed legal library, only a petition to remove him. Because despite Jerry Springer being a graduate of Pritzker Law School himself, as far as the class of 08 were concerned, he was not one of them. He was not what they were going to be. Well, if you can picture those graduates in your mind in 2008 as the announcement of Jerry Springer landed, let me tell you that you're somewhere close to imagining how the Corinthians would have reacted when they read verse 10. Because Timothy was clearly not a popular speaker, was he? For he was nothing on Apollos. Uh, Apollos, the, the man that they loved, chapter 3. For Apollos in, in Acts uh, chapter 18, we see was a man from Alexandria, he was from the, the, the intellectual center of the Roman world. He was a competent man, says Acts 18, and an eloquent speaker. And so they would have been very partial to getting him. For he was strong. He was strong and successful, a man just like them. Brother Apollos would have been a fitting preacher for their next sermon series in the Psalms. Their church website would likely see far more traffic if they got the intellectual great for a few Sundays. But Apollos, verse 12, he doesn't want to come right now. He's going to come later when he's got opportunity. And so disappointingly, they get Timothy. And how do they feel about him? Well, they were not very partial to Timothy at all. In fact, amazingly, verse 11, Paul even tells the Corinthians not to despise Timothy. And the Greek translation is not overblown. They were not to hate Timothy and his ministry and his sermons because like Apollos, verse 11, he was a brother. 
Timothy wasn't a Corinthian type. He was from the backwaters of Lystra in Turkey. Didn't even have a synagogue. Timothy was not seemingly eloquent or powerful. He didn't have many credentials. He didn't have much charisma seemingly. He didn't have much experience. He was young. That the difference between the, that the Corinthians and Timothy was the difference between Chuck and Tom Hagel. But again, like Chuck and Tom, they were brothers. And so they were to respect him. Indeed, Paul basically says the same when he speaks of Stephanus in verse 15, and Fortunatus and Archaeus in verse 17, verse 18, to such ordinary people, they were to give recognition. Paul says, as brothers and sisters, respect your brothers and sisters. Because you're all working on the same mission. You're all laboring away amid warfare. So don't, don't be partial to listening only to certain brothers and sisters because they come from the same place as you, or they come from the same intellectual stock as you, or they have the same salary level as you. Listen to people like Timothy. And don't be too proud to let him help you. You know, in November 1993, I listened to a Timothy. In fact, I actually technically listened to Timothy's mother. Her name was Gwyn Redding. And as a sporty, cool, bright 10-year-old at the time, Gwyn Redding was every bit a Timothy to me. A curly-haired lady from Wales who was no taller than five foot. The mother of Tim, the geekiest kid in church. And so as Gwyn spoke to our church youth group, in very high-pitched tones and with very cheap homemade illustrations, I had absolutely no intention of listening to her. But that night, God had other ideas. He was going to use that sister to convert me. Gwen's talk was simple. It was about prayer. And in that moment, as a proud 10-year-old boy, I, I realized that I was too proud to pray. For with Corinthian-like thinking, I thought that I could provide for myself for this life. If I worked hard at school, I'd make it. If I worked hard at sport, I'd make it. But that night, when I later talked it all through with my own mother, I realized that even if I worked hard at my sin... I would not make it. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Where then is boasting? And I came to my senses. And that night I trusted Christ. And I began to pray. Friends, listen to the Timothys in your life. Don't be too proud to let them help you. For God often uses not the finest preacher, but the faithful mother who works on the very same mission as him. Don't be too proud to listen to brothers and sisters who have the Holy Spirit living in them too. Esteem the sermons of those preaching for the first time. Respect the contributions of everybody in your small group. Listen to the testimonies of all on Sunday evenings, for some of the weakest testimonies have been some of the very best. 
and teenagers listen to your uncool parents. They love you. They want the best for you. They want you to come to Christ. So do not despise a fellow believer. The one who's maybe not as smart as you, maybe not as educated as you, one who's probably never going to be as successful as you, who's not from the same church background as you, but in humility, listen to others as you let them in and let them speak into your life. Don't be just the one who teaches all the time. Be willing to be taught, to be taught by other people and let the simplest and the humblest of minds teach you and sometimes put you in your place for God loves to use such people. In love, respect all your brothers and sisters impartially. And finally, in love, greet. Greet all your brothers and sisters joyfully. Verse 19, look down with me. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. To send greetings uh, was to cement the bond between two people. In the first century, greetings were were more than than you'd probably expect to see on an impersonal uh, uh, Christmas card from an old colleague, season's greetings from Bob. No, 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 the first century, the word greetings comes from the word to embrace or to salute that the word greetings would have conjured up all these images of, of families and, and Olympic athletes and, and, and military units, a family embracing as they arrive at the airport, a 100-meter relay team hugging after they've won Olympic gold, Chuck and Tom Hagel's own platoon saluting one another as they left the hospital and the battlefield for the final time and they went home. Greetings underscored deep respect and love and the need for one another in this task. And yet these salutations are not soulless and and stoic, are they? What did he notice that the greetings of Aquila and Prisca are hearty? Verse 19, they send you hearty greetings. And verse 20, the greetings of all the brothers are are passionate, greet one another uh, with a kiss. The greetings of Paul, that they're personal. Chapter 20, verse 21 rather, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. There was genuine, heartfelt joy behind all this working together. They really loved each other. Their emotions were stirred. They found joy in their family. And friends, when we come to Christ, that is the joy that we get to experience too. When we find Christ, when we join his joyful family, For when we repent and believe in Christ, we we come into his his wonderful worldwide family as we sign up with brothers and sisters who will give and will help and will respect one another because we're all in this fight together. Friends, I know know that, that sometimes Christians are disappointing. I know that sometimes I'm disappointing. And the Christian and the Corinthians were certainly disappointing, weren't they, to Paul at times. But in spite of all that, I wonder, Christian, have you found that joy? That that, that joy of being together as a family? 
that joy of giving to, to those in need, that, that joy of, of helping one another in the fight, that, that joy of being on mission together, of evangelizing and discipling together, the joy of saluting brothers and sisters as they leave the battlefield to go home to heaven. And if you haven't experienced that joy of having that spiritual family, or if you very rarely feel any joy for your brothers and sisters, why do you think that could be? Why? You see, if we come to Christ, I think that we should feel our old allegiances and our old joys and our old earthly ties slowly starting to loosen as we bind ourselves to Christ and his people. For again, an experience in Christ's joy His joy in bringing back from the dead his brothers and sisters. We should find that joy in our brothers and sisters too. In him. As we offer all that we have to the cause of his glory. One of the oddest books that I often like to reread is a book which contains all the old membership interview records from a London church in the Victorian era. And it says the book is nothing special at all. Simply a collection of church elders' notes for when people happen to join the church membership of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 1850s. But I find the book so encouraging. I love that book. For it gives a little bit of a window into the, the, the life of a new convert. And in the book, my favorite typed-up interview is an interview with a very young girl called Anne Hobcraft. Anne Hobcraft of 25 Maltby Street, Bermondsey, London. For it seems to capture something of what it means to, to sign up and to be in Christ's family. The written up testimony goes like this. Anne has heard the preacher, Mr. Charles Spurgeon, for about 10 months now, and with much profit. Growing up, she had attended Sunday school and often heard the word preached, but she thought nothing of it until one sermon recently awakened her to see her hopeless estate, for she found herself to be a sinner, and she was deeply concerned about her soul, and she went home that night to pray and for a long time was under conviction before she found peace with God through Jesus Christ. But during prayer, God manifested himself to her. And she now says, Christ died to save, and so to save such a sinner as me. And she ascribes the work to God the Spirit. Now, an entire life change has begun. And all things have become new. She no longer attends the theater every Sunday, but now the people of God are her dearest companions. The house of God is her sweetest resort. She is ridiculed by her ungodly parents, but she still trusts Christ alone. With endurance and patience, she prays much for her parents, but she says she could give up all for Jesus. Let's pray that we might too. Let's pray.
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we see the challenge of these words and we need your help. And we thank you that in measure you have provided it through the people sitting next to us. And so would you help us to obey your word by your spirit? Would you help us to give to others, to give sacrificially, often, proportionally? Help us to reflect on all that you've given us. And help us not only to to, to give our, our money, but our time and our energy and our skills to help other people. Help us to help others sacrificially, particularly those who may be trapped in sin. And help us to respect one another. Help us to do that impartially. Help us to see that you have given us each other and that you've gifted each and every one of our brothers. And help us to find joy in one another in being part of your family. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.